Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. They will tell you the story that at some point in the Middle Ages, the brewery burned down and the malt got smoked by accident. And the brewer was not able to afford to throw out this malt, so he was forced to turn it into beer. And for some strange reason, the locals enjoyed that smoky flavor. So from then onwards, the beer was brewed in that kind of way. It's a funny legend, but it's not the truth. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Smoke beers are known to be an acquired taste. Aromas and flavors of campfire or bacon when presented in the context of a pale or dark lager, can be surprising, jarring, or even intriguing. However, when we think broadly about our own relationship to this sensory experience, we can be transported to familiar and even nostalgic places, an outdoor gathering with friends and family, the smell of breakfast, or a barbecue. Enjoying a glass of smoked beer is a window into not only our own past, but also the history of beer. Joining us this week is Matthias Trum, sixth generation brewmaster and patron of Schlenkerle Brewery and Tavern, located in Bamberg, Germany. Brewers and fans of smoked beer hold the distinctly smoky lagers and wheat beer from this Bavarian brewery in the highest regard. Known for its unique malt handling and preparation methods that impart a distinctly smoky aroma and flavor, Schlenkerle's Merzen, wheat beer, box, and pale lager are gateways into a special sensory experience. We discuss how Matthias translates historical brewing records into modern recipes, what his experience as a family business owner and operator has been like, and how he balances modernity, tradition, and innovation. This conversation wouldn't have been complete without a discussion of the Reinheitsgebot, the evolution of purity laws in Bavaria, and how they are employed and relevant to consumers today. Let's dive and get heavy. Matthias Trum, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much for the invitation, and I really look forward to our talk today. Schlenkerla is a brewery and tavern that's steeped in history, dating as far back as 1405 in Bamberg, known for smoked lagers, and in particular, the unique and historic method you use for drying and thereby imparting smoky flavors to your malt. Consumers in the U.S. can now try beers made with malts that have been smoked or smoke has been introduced to the malt in some process, but it's a little bit different than what you do. So can you start by sort of walking us through the process through which you're treating your grain and how that may be different from what people are experiencing when they're using a bag of breeze malt or uh, maybe Vyrmin or something else of the kind? As you pointed out, the secret is all in the malt making. And um, Schlenkerle is one of the last breweries in the world to still have its own malting operation. And we're one of only two breweries in the world that continuously have been doing smoke malts in the original way. So uh, the basic process of malting involves first, of course, the uh, har- uh, the harvesting of, of the grain. Um, in the malt house, in the maltings, you first steep the grain. That means you basically soak it in water. So you can imagine uh, a large basin in which the grain is added. Usually barley is used um, for making malt. And uh, the barley will soak up the water and, and enrich itself with water. And after about two days of soaking, 
you um, uh, bring the malt to a germination facility. And then the same happens with the grain that happens when you sow it out on the field. Um, the grain will start to develop a plant. It will start to grow. So a small seedling is coming out of the grain. Uh, little uh, root tips are coming out. And this germination process um, is essential for the later beer production because in this germination process, certain enzymes are formed in the grain, which are later on responsible or necessary for the actual brewing and fermentation process. And um, after about four or five days of germination, uh, that germination process needs to be stopped because otherwise a full plant will develop and all the um, uh, nutrition of the grain would be used up in order to form that plant. And obviously one, we want to have those nutritions in the beer. Yeah, So we, we need to stop the germination process and we do that by drying it. So now comes the special part about uh, Schlenkeller smoke malt. In a modern malting operation in a malt factory, this drying will be done with hot air, which is generated by conventional heating systems, uh, gas burners, oil burners, uh, maybe even electricity, something of that sort. So um, you have hot air, which is basically aroma-free, similar to when you blow dry your hair. Uh, the blow dryer will not bring any aroma into your hair when you do that, because it's, of course, not wanted. In Schlenkeler, we do it differently. In Schlenkeler, we dry the mold over an open fire. We uh, take high-quality wood, usually beech wood, and um, we make a fire with that, similar to a chimney fire, you know, from, from your home place. And the grain is stored on top of the fire, and the heat and the smoke from this fire goes into the malt, penetrates the malt, and thereby dries it. So it's a little bit like a roasting barbecue kind of thing uh, we're doing with that. And the smoke which goes into the malt thus gives the malt this smoky aroma and flavor. And the interesting thing about that is not that uh, this was an invention at some point or maybe an accident when, when you go around Bamberg and you do a city tour in Bamberg. Um, sometimes they will tell you the story that at some point in the Middle Ages, the brewery burned down and the malt got smoked by accident. And uh, the brewer was not able to afford to throw out this malt. So he uh, was forced to turn it into beer. And for some strange reason, the locals enjoyed that smoky flavor. So uh, from then onwards, the beer was brewed, uh, was brewed in that kind of way. It's a funny legend, but it's not the truth. The truth is that the basic principle of malting, which I described earlier, the steeping, the germination, the drying, that has been commonplace ever since beer was invented. Um, beer has been around in human civilization for the last 10, 12,000 years. And so malting has been around for that long. And in the old times, there was only two ways of uh, drying the malt. One was to leave it out in the sun to air dry it, uh, which probably was commonplace in, uh, in, in Mesopotamia, uh, uh, Babylon, Egypt, in those areas where beer brewing was invented because it was very dry and, and warm down there. Here in Central Europe, where the old German tribes were brewing beer, the Scandinavians were brewing beer, the Celts were brewing beer. Here, the climate was too moist, uh, at least most of the time of the year, uh, in order to dry a malt in such fashion. So the only other way of drying malt was to 
heat it and to kiln it over an open fire. So traditionally, back then, all the malts here in Central Europe and all the beers had a more or less smoky aroma and flavor. What we perceive today as standard beer flavor without smoke is actually a fairly new invention. In um, 1635, so uh, some, some 400 years ago, in England, there was uh, a Sir Nicholas Halls who got a patent. Uh, it was actually on 23rd of July, 1635, um, where he received this patent for, from King James I uh, with the first non-smoke kiln. So this was part of the industrial revolution of all the big inventions that came out of Great Britain, out of England in that time. Um, the automatic weaving chair, uh, the steam engine, most importantly. So all these early industrial inventions were done in England. And the non-smoke kiln was one of those very important inventions. Now, why did that happen in England? England had uh, depleted much of its wood supply uh, for shipbuilding, for colonization, and they had to import wood on, on a large scale. Um, the Dutch became fairly rich by selling wood from the Baltic Sea and shipping it over uh, to, uh, to England and sell it there. So they had a commercial reason to get independent of high-grade wood. And this is what Sir Nicholas uh, Halls achieved with his invention, because when you use uh, his uh, non-smoke kiln, you can use any type of fuel because the smoke is filtered out or goes a separate way than the heat before entering the grain. So with that invention, it became possible to use uh, any scrubs, any waste wood you had. And at a later point, they use coal, oil, gas. So any fuel was, was usable to make a high-grade malt and uh, thus a high-grade beer. And at the same time, it was a reduction of fire hazards in, in the malt house and the breweries. And so as today, the same thing, when, when something is cheaper and less of a hazard, uh, it quickly replaces the old technology. So in a relatively short time, um, all the smoke kilns, almost all the smoke kilns got extinct in Europe. And only here in Bamberg at Schlenkela and also at the Spezialbrewery, um, the, the old smoking tradition uh, of malt was was continued. So when, when you drink a Schlenkela smoke beer today, it's not so much a a weird or strange invention like some of these craft beers which are out there. It's much more a zip of beer history, a little travel into the past in order to get the original flavor of how beer used to be. Yeah, it feels uh, it feels that way or almost uh, as though it can, it's a continuation in some way that there's not been as much interruption as there may be exactly. with other styles of beer. And so you also use beech wood and you've also used oak, but beech wood right. is primarily your fuel source. And so tell me a little bit about uh, that particular type of wood and why that's conducive uh, for the types of beers that you're making. In general, if you want to kill malt, you need a high quality wood in order to get a good aroma uh, into the malt and later into the beer. But from a technical point of view, you also need a high burning value because otherwise you get a supply problem. Somebody has to stand there all the time and continuously bring in the wood. All the pine trees, for instance, don't work because the harsh, I don't know the English word for that, the, the sticky part that comes out of the stem, which will... <laughs> the sap or like the resinous. It will kind of glue together 
together your entire kiln and you will eventually have a huge cleaning problem. Why beechwood? Well, beechwood is very good in that respect. So is oak. Um, oak was the more or still is the more valuable wood because you can use it for shipbuilding, for construction. You use it a lot. It's very hard. Beechwood was the common choice here in Bamberg because uh, it was easily available and it still is easily available. To the west of Bamberg is the largest beechwood forest of Germany. And even in the course of the industrialization and, and population increase in the 20th century, these uh, large beechwood forests around Bamberg were not uh, deforested. They were not cut down. And this, I think, is also part of the reason why the smoke beer survived here, because the fuel was easily available. At the same time, switching to a modern kiln operation would have been more difficult here in Bamberg than elsewhere, because um, gas or oil, uh, my oil and gas are imported anyhow, but even coal, which is uh, easily available in other parts of Germany, is not existing here in, in, in Franconia and in Bavaria. So in order to switch to a modern type kiln, you would have to transport coal over longer distances. So the economic advantage is not as big as it is elsewhere. So these situational variables uh, added to um, the survival of, of the smoke beer style here. Are there concerns about deforestation or sort of environmental uh, impetuses? Not necessarily that Schlenkerla is ripping out forests because no. <laughs> you don't make enough beer to do that. Really but small, there yeah. are concerns about highways being built and forests being taken apart. I was speaking with uh, someone earlier for, for a different episode, and he was staying in a tree in sort of between Berlin and sort of like Dortmund. There was like a some some forest around him that had been... Uh, uh, that was being torn up and he was upset about it. And so I was just kind of curious if there is any type of like urban encroachment uh, that may impact your sort of uh, source. The story you're telling is probably the Hambacher Forest, which was a big political thing over near Dortmund. And it was not a high quality forest to my knowledge, but um, I think they wanted to deforest it to get some more coal or something. And that, of course, in a time of uh, climate change, and that is something which is going to bring the uh, greens and, and the environmentalists really up to speed. So uh, they wanted to make a point out of that not happening. In general, I think we have very strict environment protection laws here in Germany. So I don't see a problem coming from, from that direction that for building some highway or some industry uh, foundations that they would cut down this beechwood forest, especially um, the majority of the German forests nowadays is actually pine trees, which were reforested after the first industrial revolution wave in the, in the late 20th century. Um, so Germany is very aware of its traditional and more valuable forests, such as this beechwood forest to uh, the west of Bamberg. And I think there's a debate going on to make it a national monument which would still make it possible to get out some wood in the rate we needed. So I don't see a problem there. The risk we're actually running, and that is something that worries me a little bit, is a climate change because uh, Germany had very dry years in the last couple of years. This year was much better, but the German forests are really suffering uh, harshly because the rain amount we have been getting the last couple of years is way too little for the traditional leaf-based forests, which uh, we have have beech, oak, uh, and, and all the traditional leaf trees. The pine trees, they're doing fairly okay, I think, but uh, the leaf trees have a big problem because they 
um, evaporate so much water in the summertime. And if that continues and uh, Europe is uh, or Germany is going to get drier uh, than it, it used to be, um, we might actually get problems with the situation of our forests and eventually then probably also with the wood supply for, for any industry, yeah, for, uh, for furniture, for wherever you need it. So that in, indeed worries me. You know, I was thinking about sort of the floods and some of the other uh, environmental events that had occurred and there's concern about the hop industry too because if the price of hops doesn't make it so that a grower it really is is incentivized to continue to grow they may grow rapeseed or they may change their crop altogether and climate change is definitely impacting who can grow what where because you sort of stated a concern about your wood source are you concerned about how climate change may impact the availability to things like hops or other ingredients that are important to you creating your beer we try to source everything local, like the, the, the barley, the hops, and uh, obviously there's a lot of suppliers of that in Bavaria, but uh, Germany is not able to grow all the barley it needs for its beers, and it's not able to grow all the hops it needs. So there's always some some rate of import. And as you said, um, it changes. Like Scandinavia can grow more grain through, uh, through climate change than they could now. Um, Ukraine has huge areas where they can grow grain. So I think... Getting grain um, and getting hops should always be possible. The question is, at what price? Yeah, so I'm pretty sure that we're going to see a lot of price increases. And what's been happening in the last couple of years, whenever China is jumping onto a market and uh, starts to buy something, prices go up extremely. And uh, the big malting operations, which are on the Rhine River, which have easy access to international container shipping, they sell lots uh, of their grain surplus, which they cannot sell in Germany. Germany, they sell it to China. And the Chinese have a tendency of doing long-term contracts. So at some point, that actually might, might create problems in that direction. We, from our end, we do the same thing. We, we always have been doing very long contracts. For instance, uh, hop contracts run for the next eight years straight. So our hop suppliers know we're going to take that and that amount every year for the next eight years. So that gives them a base for planning. It gives us a, a base for the supply. In the end, however, when the harvest is not sufficient to cover that because there was a hailstorm destroying uh, the hops harvest, which happened uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and, and the dryness, of course, which is also a problem, we're all going to have serious, serious issues in that respect in, in the future. And the impression for me is, especially now in, in the months after Corona, where so many commodities became almost unaffordable. Yeah, uh, getting a container to ship something from Germany to the US was a huge problem. Prices increased and it still is. And that container ship in Suez Canal that blocked the canal for a couple of weeks and everything broke down uh, worldwide. I'm always getting the impression that communism failed because it was not able to supply its people with the goods they wanted. Germans were, Western Germans were always kind of looking down on German Democrat, Eastern Germany, GDR, because they didn't have bananas and all the foods was uh, low in, in supply. But now we're getting in a situation where 
to a certain extent, we see that in the Western world as well. Look at England with the Brexit, where certain commodities are not available in supermarkets anymore. And uh, same here, uh, pallets are hard to get at the moment in order to stack something onto. So I always get the impression that Western capitalism seems to be on the route to uh, similar problems than communism had in the end. And I'm not sure what that's going to do to people and to the brains of people and, and how they're going to react to that. I think at one point, they're going to demand that the government makes sure that they get their basic food supply, that they get their basic beer supply, all those everyday commodities you need all the time. And I think that's going to do something with uh, the way we, we look at our states, at democracy for some point, at what the government has to do for you. And I fear that protectionism, which has been on the rise in the last couple of years, is continued to rise because uh, if there's not a enough barley on the local market, how can you defend to your local people that you still export that? Well, you have to because otherwise you don't get exported goods from other countries, but people don't see that. They want to buy from others, but don't give out what they have themselves. So I think we have some interesting times ahead to say it to say the least that's a very uh, interesting perspective because i think a lot of breweries have suffered from various supply chain issues and we as consumers have seen that as well from whether it's people hoarding items to futures markets impacting how much of something is harvested a certain year and then all of a sudden you can't get uh, aluminum cans for example and so it's definitely one of these uh, situations where people are wondering how they can be guaranteed the thing that they're used to right toilet paper in corona times when in, in the corona lockdowns it was really like <laughs> Um, Eastern US uh, a couple of months ago with the uh, shortage in, in gasoline, where the pipelines broke down. These things have been unimaginable 10 years ago, but now, hey, we're confronted with it and we somehow have to deal with that. It's, uh, yeah, strange times, really strange times. It's interesting. And so when you've been able to welcome people back into your uh, establishment, uh, what is their feeling of coming back and are they enjoying the the smoked beer that you produce in the way that they did before? Bavaria just eased the uh, strong restrictions um, two weeks ago. So until like two weeks ago, um, we had limited seating inside. We had partitioners, be uh, partitioners between the tables. Uh, there was a minimum distance between guests and all that. Outside was okay, but inside. So now everything is actually back to normal. So we have our normal tables and seats inside. And people are really overwhelmed with, with joy and happiness that they can have the Schlenkler as, as they used to have it. And I mean, we have postcards from, from the 19th century in which you can see that all the tables, all the chairs were exactly at the same spot where they are now. And it was like the first time in, because of Corona where there was an, a change in there. And it was a real big thing for a lot of people to not be able to go to taverns the normal way. Also, uh, I don't know how much you followed other countries. Uh, German taverns were closed from November 2020 to May 2021. So for 
basically more than half a year. And that's been never the case in Schlenkela as, as long as I know from the records. Even in World War II, the tavern was open basically every day. My grandmother, when she ran the tavern in World War II, she was actually giving out food um, against food stamps to the needy. So we were part of the local supply, of the local uh, food supply, and that we would be closed for half a year. If you told me that two years ago, I would have called you a total crazy person. But so it happened. And it was extremely unpleasant experience for us, not only economically, uh, more actually from, from the uh, psycholo uh, psychological point of view, that something is able, this little virus and, and the consequences of it are actually able to close down an old place like Schlenkela, which has been open for uh, hundreds of years. That's fascinating. In your life, you were mentioning before we came on that you live with your business in so many different ways as the patron of the uh, tavern, as a brewmaster, and as a sixth generation family business owner as well. And so walk me through sort of like looking out from your home over an empty beer garden. What sort of goes through your head and how does that sort of interact with the maybe feeling of expectation of being the sixth generation? It's really hard to describe. I'm 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 not so the uh, emotional person. My, ask my wife; she can confirm that. When when we talked earlier, you you saw the pictures behind me with the ancestor lines. So as as you pointed out, I'm the sixth generation, and um, I think we have the the oldest uh, grave here in on, on the local cemetery. And I can look up all these lines of of brewmaster. And what they have gone through, two world wars, the Hispanic uh, flu pandemic in the 1920s, the hyperinflation, um, all these uh, rise and fall of communism, etc. Um, all these huge influences, but always the business continued and they always found a way of keeping running. And suddenly you're walking every morning through your empty tavern. There's no guests, there's, there's no employees there. Um, nothing is going on. You don't really have a perspective you kind of know in your back head that obviously gastronomy cannot be closed forever. And at some point um, it has to come back. Like even without a vaccination at some points, they would have just said, okay, let's go. And there's going to be so and so many dead people because you cannot close everything forever. The lack of perspective and the lack of being able to do something about it. Yeah. I mean, we, we cannot generate a vac vaccination or a cure or whatever. That was extremely frustrating. And thinking that my ancestors had managed all these crises and uh, now I'm here and this is going to be my big crisis. And I hope my last uh, or the one and the last big crisis where eventually, hopefully my children will look back onto and say, okay, dad did a, a, a good thing back then and he managed to, to keep it running. But obviously you don't know whether you are able to do that. The good point for, for us was, and so I never lost hope, but um, it, it was psychologically demanding, of course. The good point for us was that beer is considered food in Germany, uh, and in particular in Bavaria. So the brewery was always running. It was never closed. There was never any rules that beer was not allowed to be brewed or to be sold or whatever. And um, obviously, a lot of people switched to a supermarket supply for, for their beer assortment. So when they couldn't go to the taverns, they got it from the supermarket, they drank at home, they sat in the gardens, etc. So we actually saw a surplus in sales there, which covered a little bit. 
And um, so it was okay from that point of view. The brewery actually was doing normal operation. We, we actually launched a new uh, type of beer in that uh, time as well. Beer history is a little bit of, of my, my hobby. And I read very much about old historic styles, which of course the smoke beer is a very prominent one of. And I also have old recipe books, or one old recipe book from my great-great-grandfather uh, in which he uh, wrote down all the brews he did from 1840 to 1855 in all detail. Uh, malt bill, water ratio, hops used, fermentation temperature, etc. So it's extremely detailed. And from that, we actually deducted another style of beer, which I also was able to confirm in uh, other documents. Um, back then, people were drinking beer every day instead of water because water was potentially harmful, uh, polluted with uh, bacteria. So uh, water, a beer was a water substitute. And in order to not get drunk, people would, uh, during the day, drink a low alcohol beer. And in Bamberg, there was a special brewing technique with which they did a beer which was below 1% alcohol, that the Heinz line. And we were already looking a little bit into the, the whole topic because uh, um, obviously a lot of people nowadays ask for low alcohol beers during the day. Come Corona, we decided to bring that out in a bottled version in normal beer crates and we offered it to the local supermarkets. And with Corona, a lot of people stayed at home a lot or did uh, uh, sports like uh, running outside and that. And so there was a huge demand for low alcohol beers. And we exactly jumped into that. And all the Bamberg supermarkets pretty much immediately listed this old historic low alcohol style beer. So the, the hectoliters we basically lost through because of the closed tavern, we were able to compensate with this new style. So staff in the brewery actually never was on short labor or anything. They could work normally all through the corona crisis. So that really was um, one part uh, of the bright outlook into the future where you said, okay, we're going to manage that. We're going to survive that. Um, gastronomy was helped a lot by the government. There was uh, uh, subsidy payments for, for, for workers. They would take over a certain amount of the costs you had during the time of lockdown. Uh, so German government was pretty much generous in that time. You got tax deductions in that. So in the end, it worked out fairly well. Still a horrible balance uh, scorecard, of course, but uh, not to a point where you have to say, oh my God, we, we're not going to survive that. I, I think we, we got through it uh, quite well and uh, the Heinz line helped along the way. And also exports in the United States, our importer was uh, still bringing in a lot of Schlenkala and uh, American beer drinkers um, also were a big help in that, uh, that line. So uh, I think I managed or we managed that crisis and I just God, I hope that not another one is coming like that. Yeah, I think I personally was looking for flavor experiences during that time that, and I still do today, I'm very guilty of, of this, but looking for flavor experiences that remind me and are transportative in some way that take me to a place where I am currently not, whether it's imagined or uh, from right. memory. And uh, I think for a lot of people, uh, smoke is a reference to uh, some type of communal fun activity that maybe they couldn't right. do during the pandemic. And so I am ready for a case of your uh, 
low alcohol beer that I can drink all the time and, and, and always go there. But uh, do you feel as though that is a perspective that people had in relation to your product, because that is a specific attribute uh, that is common in society and specific to the beer that you make? Memories are triggered by by smells and flavors. Uh, that that's an open secret, and I, I think Schlenkela and the smoke beer is a very dominant in that respect. So yes, I a hundred percent agree. People that miss the barbecue or missed uh, um, the, the Schlenkela atmosphere were able to jumpstart their brain into that situation in in the tapping room when 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 drinking uh, a Schlenkela at home from the bottle or uh, poured from the bottle in to the glass. I mean, that's that's been the continuous thing over the last 20 years or so. Ever since email became available, um, we receive uh, numerous emails uh, uh, throughout the year, uh, especially from Americans who at some point had been in Bamberg and uh, were at the Schlenkler Brewery Tavern and had a smoke beer there and end up finding it at some place in the United States in some uh, well-assorted uh, um, bottle shop. And then they take that sip of, of, of smoke beer and they say, wow, I'm immediately back in Bamberg and all the memories of the beautiful town, the old buildings, the big cathedral, little Venice, the town hall on the island in the water. All these memories jump back just by the notion of that flavor on the mouth. So, yeah, this is something smoke beer can do uh, very, very, very dominant, dominantly. And, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy that we're able to transport these emotions to other people with our Rauch beer. You sort of mentioned looking to the past for inspiration in terms of recipes or ideas and the low alcohol version being something that you found in what I imagine to be a very fun sort of trove to look through of different recipes. And so I was curious about your Alf Krausen and that sort of process because that's something that is quite historic, but you don't see that often and is innovative in the sense that you're using what you have to create something new as well. So take a moment to sort of like walk us through what uh, the development of an old idea into a new beer looks like, perhaps in reference to your uh, Krausen beer. The Schlenkerler Kreuzen uh, or Kreuzen in, in German, as they call it, the, the, I have to explain for uh, for your listeners. I think the the Kreuzen are the foam bubbles which form during uh, the main fermentation of the beer, and in the old days it was not possible to pressure lager beer um, at all. Like the wooden barrels could withstand a certain pressure, but not over a long time. So when beer was stored for a longer time, it would eventually go stale. Think of the um, uh, the barrel-aged beers from, from England, which are hugely interesting and complex in flavor, but very low, lowly carbonated. Or here in Germany, uh, Franconia, the Keller beer style, which is also very, the unbunked beer, which is also very, very low, uh, low in carbonation. So that's the first piece of the puzzle. When you do an historic beer, you always have a puzzle which you have to solve. And you have to look for the various pieces of that puzzle. And uh, I look in, in, uh, in old family records. I look in old books on brewing in general. There's a number of those in, uh, in, in the good assorted libraries. Uh, example, uh, in uh, Weinstefan Brewing University, they have old books 
Um, you can find a lot of things online these days, obviously. When you do that with German books, you always have the additional challenge that these are written in old German fonts and not in the modern writing. So um, you have to be able to read that, which luckily I am to a certain degree because we have so many old family uh, documents in that, but it's still a challenge and uh, you're much slower than when you read normal Latin letters as we know them today from, from our newspapers and, and websites. In, in parts of the Kreuzen, the first piece of the puzzle was this recognition that pressure fermentation was not possible. The second piece of the puzzle was that in the summertime, back then, uh, brewing of a lager beer was not possible either, because when you want to do a lager beer, you need uh, uh, fermentation tempers, uh, temperatures around 7-8 degrees Celsius for the lager type yeast. And uh, artificial cooling only was invented in 1872. Um, this was, by the way, done by a Franconian, Karl von Linde, and uh, he invented the ammonia ice machine, which could produce ice all around the year. And his research was actually financed by a brewery because breweries had an interest in getting a supply of coldness for the summertime. So second piece of the puzzle, before the invention of the artificial cooling, there was no lager beer production uh, in sum summertime. So at the same time, the lager beers were considered to be the higher grade beers because they were um, lagered, matured. They had the more developed flavor as compared to uh, the ales, which were quickly produced. Ales also have more esters, which some people react with uh, headaches to. So lager beer was considered the better beer. Whether that actually is the case is a philosophical question, which we shouldn't get into. But back then, that was the view. So the question now was, how do you get a lager beer in the summertime, which is not stale? And the only option you have is taking a well-lagered beer, um, which had been in the barrel for a couple of weeks or a couple of months even, and add a little bit of a freshly brewed beer, just enough that it doesn't get too warm, yeah? because the freshly brewed beer would have been 25, 30 degrees, something like that, room temperature at summertime, to get the fermentation going again. And because in the fermentation, obviously, carbon dioxide is formed. And in the course of that process, you get new foam bubbles on your beer. And so the brewers called that Aufkreuzen, to add foam bubbles, if, if you want to translate it uh, uh, loosely. So my idea was, let's make this type of beer. We, we take a lagered beer, that is our Helles Lager, which is not smoky. We add a little bit of fresh Merzen, which is unfermented yet. And we get the fermentation going again, thereby adding a, a little bit of smoke flavor into the Helles Lager. Also darken it a little bit because the Merzen is obviously much darker than the lager. And we get this freshness and, and the livelihood, the, um, the vividness um, of the fresh carbonation. And we simply did an experiment with that, what the final flavor is. And it was, in my opinion, awesome. I, I, I absolutely love the Kreuzen. So that was the production point of view. And then came the marketing point of view. Okay, this is something we do in summer. Alcohol is relatively low. It's unfiltered. So, hey, let's make this a summer beer. And um, we started... I think in 2009, we introduced that, if I remember correctly, or 2010 in our brewery tavern. In the first year, first years, we only had it from the wooden barrel in the tavern. And three or four years ago, we started with a, a bottled version as well in the United States. It's available in the tank container project from Be United in cans. It's a puzzle. You see old production limitations which existed in the past, or you see descriptions of how production was different back then than it was today. 
I mean, that's the same with a smoke mold, basically. And uh, then you have to put these pieces together because obviously there's no beer descriptions from the time as in as regards to flavor or color or even alcohol content is something you will not find because simply alcohol content was not measurable back then. Sometimes you find malt ratios, malt amounts in relation to, to water amounts. But again, that's a challenge because back then there was no metric system here. So uh, things were calculated in buckets or in, in, in shuffles. And to make things even more challenging, the bucket size was different in every town. So um, it's, it's like uh, being a Sherlock Holmes of beer. You have to do all, you have to do all these deductions and, and you have to know all these little proofs and, and uh, parts of the puzzle in order to, in the end, make a beer with which at least comes relatively close to what the historic uh, uh, style might have been. The only thing um, we would need was a time machine to travel back then and to compare the actual flavors. But apart from that, I think we're pretty close. That's a, that's a very interesting uh, sort of story about bringing something forward and having to do all these different sorts of translations and different calculations and even reading the text itself as all part of a puzzle is uh, is very fascinating. And it's interesting, I imagine, seeing these recipes and then interpreting what the values are at the time through what they're communicating in the writing. Was there anything that you sort of learn about the time? time in which these people are making beer that is new to you? I always learn new things because uh, I, I went to brewing university in Weinstefan and I know, of course, all the basics of, of, of uh, standard brewing as we know it today. And there was also some history classes where you, you got some background uh, to the other aspect. But the normal history professor today won't uh, bother himself with something trivial as beer. Usually they go about politics and the big wars and what did the, this king do and what did that general do? So uh, politics takes a role revolves around that and uh, history, historic research revolves around that and historic research into all types of food all types of beer exists as well of course but it doesn't seem to have the same esteem as if someone were to discover something new about Julius Caesar it is a quite challenging uh, topic and um, I think there's millions of things I don't know yet and uh, a lot of things to, to find out and Probably even some of the interpretations we're doing today are not 100% accurate. And there's another piece of the puzzle, which I forget to mention earlier. Even if you know all the elements from back then, you still also need the equipment to do it uh, in, in the modern way. And uh, being Schlenkeler or being an old brewery, we're quite, luckily, uh, we're quite lucky in that respect because obviously we still have the old kiln in operation, but we also have an old copper brew house, two vessel brew house, not the modern stainless steel ones with automated pumps and that. So of course we have modern elements as well, but it's still the old equipment there, the old rock cellars underneath the brewery where we can do a nat natural lagering without artificial temperature control if we don't want to. So we are relatively flexible in that res respect, not to the entire extent, obviously, because back then um, stirring was done manually. This is not something you can do uh, with modern labor laws. So there's some limitations still exist there. But to a very large extent, I think we have the equipment to, to bring back these historic styles. So if everything really kind of falls together. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a very challenging and interesting thing, interesting thing to do. And I think there's uh, 
tons of more of ideas out there, which which we can do in the couple in, in the coming years. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Matthias Trum in a minute. Please consider donating to the GoFundMe we created to support Sam, who is the co-host of this show. He's undergone two surgeries, physical therapy, and radiation treatment in an effort to be cancer. You can find out more about Sam's diagnosis and story at the GoFundMe link in the episode notes. So your family came into the brewery, uh, switching over to kind of your own maybe personal history and the yeah. families within the context of Schlenkerla over a hundred years ago. And so how did your family come into the brewery and what was happening at that time in the brewery? The building, which I'm sitting in now, dates back to the year 1405. And uh, whether it was brewing back then is not 100% proven, maybe even not. But um, in in the late 1500s, so 1485 starting, uh, Coopers were owning the building. And Coopers in Bamberg uh, were, for the most part, also brewers. Coopers and brewers were in the same guild, in the same association. And barrel making was an essential technology to make beer if you like we can talk about that later on a little bit more but that's a different topic so beer brewing barrel making always took place in this building here from uh, around 1500 onwards but there was numerous owner changes over time brewing beer back then was a very dangerous profession you had to transport the barrels into the rock lagering cellars over steep stairs. And often accidents occurred where uh, the owners of breweries uh, died. Uh, you can find that in records of many brewers here locally. And usually the widow would then want to continue the business by marrying the head brewer or marrying another, marrying another brewer. So often you find name changes, which do not necessarily mean that there's a family change in there. Now, what happened exactly in the 19th century, to that extent, we don't really know. But uh, Konrad Graser, my great-great-grandfather, um, was the first of the direct family line to own the Heller Brewery. It started 1862, if I recall correctly. And um, his son, Andreas Graser, he was the person who, by accident, generated the name Schlenkala for the tavern. There's the legend that he had an accident in the brewery. Maybe he fell over a wooden barrel or maybe the brewery horses stepped on his toe. We, we, we don't really know what happened, but he was limping afterwards. And when you limp and walk, then you kind of dangle your arms in order to keep your balance. And that in the Franconian vernacular is called Schlenkern, to dangle, to, to walk not straight. And um, the regulars in the tavern, the, the patrons, the customers, they gave my ancestor, my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, the nickname, the Schlenkala, the dangling person. And that name over time became synonymous for the tavern and for the beer. So that was Andreas Graser uh, contribution. After him, my great-grandfather was uh, Michael, Michael Graser, Michael Graser. He's a very, or he was a very uh, uh, intelligent person. He actually wanted to go into art science, but he had to continue the business of his father because uh, his father died relatively young. Uh, 
And uh, he was the oldest at the time, and he simply had to take over because his brothers couldn't. And much of the interior you see in the Schlenkeler Brewery pub today, the beautiful old pictures, the picture I showed you earlier on behind me, um, also the antlers, and to my opinion, most importantly, the beautiful restored Gothic style uh, ceiling in the Dominicana closet with, the, with these pointy arches and the the beautiful painting on uh, in in the ceiling of that that was his work because he was this art person and he got a restorer from a big museum uh, who was hanging under the ceiling for months in order to restore that to its, its original state. Um, at the same time, he was very smart about the brewery. He invested into, uh, I think he got the first truck to transport beer and um, he renewed the brew house in the 1930s. So the Copper Vessel Brew House is from him. So that was his contribution. And later came my grandfather who was able to purchase certain buildings around Around the tavern which contributed there my father who started the export business and uh, laid uh, the basis to uh, a more modern approach of business dealing in, in the company um, the design scheme the corporate design as today it would be called the these um, labels you uh, you have for Schlenkala with that uh, little uh, insignia on the bottom right that was his work so every generation did their contribution to the overall business. So it's it's really like in a generation ship, it's a generation task to build up something like that. And you can see that in other breweries here in the area as well. I mean, Franconi has almost 300 breweries and much, most of them are family operated in the third, fourth something uh, generation. Um, Schlenkeler is sticking out a little bit with the sixth generation. My children are here uh, uh, running around already. Um, they're in primary school, but the seventh generation is there as well. Being part of such a family and such a family business also is rewarding and reassuring to a point where you say you're you're part of something bigger. As we said, talked about Corona early on, you always have the the hope and actually the assuredness that somehow it will continue to go on. Yeah, in, in the world wars, the business was not closed. Pestilence uh, did not stop uh, the brewery. Um, the Thirty Year War in the 17th century did not stop the brewery. So there's always going to be a way how it continues onwards. Maybe in a in a loose translation of uh, the movie Jurassic Park, where Jeff Goldblum always says, life finds a way. I think with uh, Schlenkel and Smokebeer, you can say Smokebeer always finds a way to survive. So yeah, I think um, that's a very reassuring thing to be part of, of something like that. When you were younger, when did you decide going into the family business was going to be a thing for you? Well, I grew up in the house here. Um, uh, when I went to bed at night as a little child, I heard the, the people talking in the tavern below me or out in the street. And um, later on, uh, puberty times, when you started going out here in Germany, you can start drinking alcohol at a younger age than in the US, uh, age 16. All the friends gathered at my place because, hey, cool, let's go to the guy with the brewery. Yeah, hey, what's better to do there? So um, I don't know whether one can translate that, but in, in Germany, if, if you're something special, you're called a colored dog. And everybody knows the colored dog. So that's the uh, that's the phrase here in German. Jeder kennt den bunten Hund. And if, if you come from a brewery, more so when the brewery is Schlenkeler, um, you have a certain esteem and reputation and, and people look at you. And I think to a certain degree, any young person would like that. And on the other hand, uh, when you run your own 
brewery or your own business, you have a certain freedom of doing decisions. Nobody tells you start in the morning at seven o'clock and first you do that, second you do that, you do that, third you do that. So when, when you run your own place, you're independent. Um, that was very intriguing to me because I always had a problem when people told me what to do because I always had a different idea. Germany uh, back then, when I was uh, graduating from school, still had mandatory military service. So I had to go to German military for 10 months and I always had serious troubles with uh, the, the, the people in front of me because I always argued, you know, what you're telling me doesn't make sense. Let's do it another way. And that's not something you're going to tell an officer <laughs> very often. Yeah. So I, I got in serious trouble. That that entire Uh, uh, package also because I love history and Schlenkala is so much about history. Um, I love math and obviously if you run your own company math is something you should know uh, when you do the calculations and um, beer is a cool topic in general whenever you When you come to a party uh, and uh, talk to people you've never seen before and it comes to questions, what are you doing? Hey, you're a brewmaster. <gasps> you're a brewmaster. Wow. And the conversation goes, you know. So that entire package was extremely attractive for me. And so I, I never questioned in any way that I uh, would would run the place or continue the business, especially I don't have, I'm a single child, so there's no, no brothers and sisters. So if I wouldn't have done it, who would have, it just made perfect sense for me to continue. And there was not the day where I made the decision and said, okay, now I'm going to do that. In, in German high school, just before graduation, you have tutors coming in telling you about the various professions you can do and, and what apprenticeship you can do or what you can do in university. And you, you kind of sign up for certain courses where they tell you what jobs you can do later on. And I was the only one in my class who did not sign up for anything because I said, hey, I know, I'm just going to continue the business. And there were no materials for Brewmaster in what the tutor or the person was offering the other pupils, I assume. So when you're thinking about your employees, because you have, you have uh, even though you run a brewery that is steeped in tradition and you look to history because of personal interest, but also uh, from an analytical perspective to people who end up as brewers, at least maybe here in the US, we find the new class of owners, especially are people with a mix of an, either a strong analytical background or a liberal arts background. So you kind of mentioned having an interest in both of these things. When you're thinking about Uh, people to bring into the business as brewers and brewmasters. Are you looking for people that obviously have technical acumen, but are you looking for people that also share an interest in history? It depends on what position. In general, I must say no, because that's basically my baby. And um, if I have someone I can talk about and, and discuss, that's, that's interesting to have. But being a small company as we are, we don't need two people that do that. When I look for uh, people for the, for the brewery, I want skilled brewers that know how to handle all the equipment you have in the breweries in the brewery, like the the hoses, the the wooden barrels, the, the classic copper vessel brew house, that they know how to treat beer in the right way in order to get uh, um, uh, the right quality. The brewmaster needs to have some additional qualifications, leadership qualities, analytical qualities, as you said, uh, tasting the flavor, knowing uh, what variables to adjust in order to have a constant high high quality. So um, these are the um, 
important things. And also, of course, dedication to beer, dedication and loyalty to our brewery. Um, because we have actually uh, one policy, or maybe policy is too much. Um, it's something that developed over time. Usually when, when people are hired or uh, work at Schlenkala, they stay there till their retirement. I really seldomly have the case where people leave the brewery. And I think only one time we had the situation where actually a brewer left. And that was a guy who said he doesn't like brewing anymore. He wants to do something else. So these people can't be helped, obviously. But from the actual brewers or brewmasters, they all stayed till uh, retirement. And even after that, coming coming in, aiding at certain times. In the tavern, of course, that's a bit, uh, different stories. Uh, tavern, in, in the kitchen staff, the waiting staff, there's more fluctuation. In the brewery for the aides that just, you know, stacked the crates on top of each other. Of course, there's certain changes there as well. But the actual brewers, once Schlenkala, Schlenkala for life. That really seems to be the situation. How do you feel about the reverence and regard your beers are held to by others? It's a, especially, I think, when I'm visiting other breweries or tasting other people's smoked beers in particular. Uh, Schlenkerla is a name that often comes up in their uh, inspiration in some way. And I, I think there's no way you haven't seen that in any way, shape or form. So uh, how does it make you feel when you're seeing people create products that are inspired by what you do and what you sort of carry as someone in a line of a family business? To be honest, it's, it's a certain mixed view on it. Of course, um, I feel uh, flattered um, uh, that whenever there's a talk about smoke beer, that Schlenkler is the reference. And um, since we have been doing it for centuries the same way, and we're one of the last two breweries to do it the original way, I think it's only fair that it is like that. And on, on the other hand, obviously, it would be perfect if any smoke beer drank or every smoke beer drank out there came from us from a business point of view. That would be nice to see. Obviously, I, I know that it would be crazy to expect that uh, in, in a market or maybe even a little bit um, ludicrous to a certain point of view. It's important for me that consumers always know the difference so you have these modern smoke beer interpretations which are done which are done with industrial made smoke malls doesn't say anything about the quality we're just talking about the historic background smoke beer is a question of personal preference anyhow so as long as as this situation is is like that that people are aware that Schlenkala is uh, the original way of doing it, and the others are um, another way of doing it, which doesn't make them better or worse. They're just different. Then I'm 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 very fine with that. And uh, yes, it is totally flattering that um, other breweries sometimes even put us on the on the label or on the website. Right? Okay, we do an interpretation of Schlenkala of Bamberg Smoke Beer, and I, I have very good contact to a lot of brewers from from other breweries that came here or. Uh, them. So yeah, uh, it's it's very flattering, and um, also to a certain point, uh, it's always better when there's more than one producer because you never know what rules and regulations the governments think of. So um, I remember when we started exporting to Turkey, there was a big issue that uh, Rauch beer, smoke beer, was not allowed as a term on the label because the Turkish government said there is no such thing as a smoke beer. 
doesn't exist, so you're not allowed to write it on the label. So obviously, if you have local producers doing the same thing, that's much less likely to happen. It's good that the smoke beer has a certain uh, revival. And it's good that these uh, industrial-made smoke beers are available. But of course, it's a big challenge for us to continuously uh, transport the message and say, hey, there's a modern smoke beer and there's the classic Schlenkela. So these two things need to be kept separate. Uh, some of your beers are available in the U.S. in cans and your importer, Be United, has a special uh, tank container project. Uh, Matthias has been on the show and has told our listeners a little bit about that in the past. And so when he brought that idea to you, uh, how did you feel about it? He's been working up to that. Matthias Neidert is a very smart person and um, he knew that any German brewery will be reluctant when they hear cans because beer in cans has a very bad reputation in Germany. Uh, canned beer in Germany is always the very cheap discount beer, low quality beer. And uh, it's only been in the last few years where you've been able to find a few better beers uh, uh, in, in, in cans with the craft beer revolution and especially the development in the United States. So I can only imagine that Matthias Neidhardt must have thought, okay, here I'm talking to one of the most historic breweries in the world and I'm, the, uh, I'm suggesting them canned beer. And we've been debating about it for a while. And the thing that triggered it for me or said for me, yes, I can live with that, there was a number of notions. The first notion was that the tank container project brings a huge and unique freshness to the U.S. market. So when the beer is transported over in the tank container, it's basically the same as if it was in, in the lagering facility because the tank container is fresh rice, it's cooled all throughout the way. So the shelf life of the product starts with the filling in Connecticut rather than the filling here in Germany. So you're taking off five, six uh, weeks of the journey time of, of the beer. And quality always is the most important thing. Anything else comes after that. So that was the first notion. The second notion was that cans are obviously easier marketable in the United States. Shipping costs are lower. Um, bottles are one way in the United States as well. So the ecological advantages of the bottle system, which we have here in Germany, they don't apply to that extent in the United States. And last but not least, the bottle is something fairly new as well. 300 years ago, breweries seldomly would bottle their beers. All the beers would have been poured from the wooden barrels. People would go with big pitchers or mugs to the local brewery tap, get the beer there and take it home with them. So at some point, my ancestors must have said, hey, let's start bottle our beer. Um, I think our first bottling line was built by Michael Graza, I said early on, sometime in the 1920s. So we've only been bottling beer for 100 years. So we might as well can it. Yeah, it doesn't make that big of a difference. Cans have been around for something like 150, 200 years. First for food, obviously, but nowadays for, for beverages as well. So the jump wasn't that big. And last but not least, from a quality point of view nowadays, the can is as good as the bottle. Um, the, the oxygen levels are the same. All that is very similar. But you have an, a, a big advantage. You don't have the light influence in a can, which you have in, in, in a glass bottle. So put that all into a package. Uh, I said it makes 100% sense for the American market. It's perfect for there. And um, we've been part of the tank container project before for draft beer. So we knew that uh, Be United is uh, 
an excellent partner and they're doing extremely well regarding uh, treating the beers and, and 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 the quality because obviously we're when when be united bottles or uh, fills the cans for us we're giving way of part of uh, production control which we usually do in-house yeah but um, matthias Neithardt's son ben benjamin was at our brewery working for some time so we knew he's really uh, enthusiastic really capable uh very smart and very able um of handling it the right way so um we had 100 percent confidence that uh, the quality is going to be as good as if we were to were to do that in, in in germany in our own brewery from there it was easy i don't think there's many importers in the world that could do something like that i don't know any canning beer here in germany for for the german market that's still something i wouldn't see for a long time or maybe never um, other export markets maybe depends on on the shipping situation from 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 a flavor point of view the the only advantage in the end from the bottle is when you drink directly i think the flavor when you drink directly from the bottle is better than when you drink directly from the can but that's of course something you can easily avoid by pouring it into a glass I think another thing that the consumer sees with that is with the price creep that's occurred in American craft market, the price of a four pack of Metzen, for example, is roughly the same price now as a four pack of a uh, maybe not quite the main product of a brewery of your size but of a specialty release. So it actually falls better within the price point than someone purchasing a single half liter bottle. Uh, they see the, the volume price ratio in a context that they better understand and with numbers that they understand. It's a very uh, interesting thing to have adapted a product that's steeped in tradition. And you know there are other brands in the portfolio that are also traditional or special in their own ways that are a part of this. And so it's a really interesting innovation. And so has it, uh, I was going to ask, and you sort of answered, but I am curious, has it made you think differently about packaging and kegging? Kegging, not that much because in export, we had already switched to one-way kegs some time ago because returning the uh, uh, the empties is, is a hassle from everywhere. Transport costs, uh, customs proceedings, etc. is just horrible. And bottle versus can, that's something I can imagine in, in the long run, having cans for certain export markets. The problem we, we have at the moment is we simply don't have the space to put up a canning line. But um, uh, obviously things like that can change over time. So um, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in five years uh, there would be a can Schlenkala, say for uh, the Japanese market, China or Australia, all the longer distances ones. Here, um, Scandinavia is very strong with uh, canned beers, but not here in Germany. And I don't think in, in countries like Italy that also go very much about traditional foods and traditional forms of preparations. France certainly is uh, something where you cannot go with uh, with a canned product. Um, they're very much about you know that the, the wine background, wine a wine in a can. I've never seen a wine in a can. Does it exist in the states? I don't know. It definitely does. Yeah, okay. there's a lot of producers that have bought canning lines or that buy into okay. like Coca Cola's canning line and then ship over because of how it, there's a strategic advantage in terms of the what you can fit on the palate and then the weight and yeah. uh, how it slots into retail. But yeah, it is a bizarre experience to see something that you're so used to in a specific medium 
in something different. Someone who's been drinking something in that way for a long time can be skeptical, I understand. That's definitely the case. And uh, Germany has that environmental background. I mean, we're very proud of our uh, returnable system for bottles, which doesn't work quite as well as a couple of years ago because more and more breweries seem to switch to individual bottles. But um, there's now some uh, uh, initiatives going on to actually return to a standardized system and so forth. Climate change again, uh, resource, uh, lack of resources, saving energy, all that runs in, in, in the same line. And if, if you look at all the work you have for producing a can and then you just throw it out after one usage, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense unless, of course, you have that long transport line in between. Well, definitely time to uh, start promoting the uh, five liter kegs that people take home instead. Uh, <laughs> uh, one last topic here that I'm pretty curious about, and that is the purity law and your feelings about it, because modern sort of craft beer and this is coming from an American perspective, but I know that there are breweries in Europe and in Germany that have started to look to the U.S. And so I'm curious as to how you look at that uh, third wave perspective. And so the purity law of uh, 1516 mandate for listeners mandates only water, malt and hops can be used in something that can be called beer. And as I understand it, it's still interpreted that way to a certain extent. Can you first talk about how this is enforced today? And then we can talk a little more about your feelings about it. You mean the Bavarian purity law of 23rd April, 1516, which uh, later when Bavaria joined the uh, German nation in the 20th century, 18, when was it? 1871, I think. Um, the Second German Empire was formed, Bismarck, the uh, Iron Chancellor. And at that point, the Bavarian purity law became the German purity law, and all beer had to be produced that way. And yes, you're correct, it's still enforced today. The European Union, uh, with the common European market tried to abolish it because they regarded it as, uh, as a limitation to non-German brewers because obviously breweries in, in Holland or France or Italy uh, were not, or even England, were not following the purity law, but in fact used other ingredients. And um, by making it mandatory for beer sold in Germany to follow the purity law, all those other European producers were sh locked out from the German market. And that was, of course, something which was not uh, in accordance with uh, the European uh, uh, treaties. So I think it was back in 92 when uh, the purity law was on the verge of being uh, abolished by that rules and regulations. But luckily, there was a loophole in the European treaties, which was called the Inlanders Discrimination. So basically, any country within Europe can make stricter market access rules for uh, businesses of that country as long as businesses of the other countries do not have to follow those rules and as long as of course everybody follows the european rules and this is what germany in fact did um, and said that beer brewed in germany for the german market still needs to follow the purity law. Purity law was transformed over time many, uh, in, in many ways. So it's today not just those three ingredients. It's more defined what you can do, what you cannot do, how you can filter your beer, what bar, uh, what malts you can use. Um, there are certain exceptions to the purity law. When you do a historic beer, which stands outside the purity law, you're still allowed to do that. There's, for instance, something called Lausitzer Porter. 
Um, it's a, a beer in Eastern Germany, which is brewed using uh, sugar color. Yeah, so these historic examples are uh, uh, possible. And then there's the other topic of the enforcement of the law. Uh, the enforcement of the law is something which each state uh, does individually. So there's the Bavarian uh, food ministry, and then there's the Berlin food ministry, and there's the Hamburg food ministry, etc. And every of these food ministries handle it slightly different. So in, in effect, in Bavaria, um, the purity law is interpreted in a very strict fashion. So anything that looks like a beer, important difference, it doesn't even have to say beer on the label. Anything that looks like a beer or is a fermented drink from, from grain to make it very right, basically has to follow the purity law. In other states of Germany, um, the interpretation is done less strict, so there's more uh, possibilities there. But here, Bavaria, since it is the source of the original purity law and very much of the self-understanding of Bavarian beer as being, or at least it used to be, the ambassador of uh, German food uh, next to uh, um, uh, Haxe and 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 then the Lederhosen and, you know, all that Bavarian uh, life culture. So Bavaria is very keen on protecting the entire purity law. I again come more from a historic point of view. The first thing most people don't know is that the Bavarian purity law was not the first purity law. The Bavarian purity law just summed up a number of city laws that had been in existence before. One has to understand for that, that back then there was not a, a, a national state as we know it today. There was not much of national laws or national regulations. Most of the cities were administering themselves. There were even tax borders between cities. So when you want to look into original food legis legislation, you have to look into the archives of the various cities. The oldest food legislation um, in regards to beer was from 1155, so 400 years before the purity law, from the city of Augsburg. Also, that law basically stated that only uh, uh, malt, hops, and water are to be used in, in, in beer. Bamberg had its purity law, um, which was issued on 12th of October, 1489, and many other cities had those. Again, first piece of the puzzle. Second piece of the puzzle. It is true that the purity law had a certain quality background to it. So they wanted to make sure that the beer supply, which was food back then, keep that in mind, to the locals uh, had a certain minimum quality in order that people didn't get sick. But that was only the second most uh, or the second reason why the purity law was issued. The first reason was taxation. Beer was always a source of big income for, for governments. Um, Bavaria, when they joined Germany, the beer tax was the number one tax in overall uh, sum in Bavaria. So they had to make sure that the taxation process worked. Nowadays, all the beer taxes, wine taxes are based on alcohol. For beer here in Germany, it's original gravity, but you can calculate original gravity into alcohol. So basically, it's the same thing. Centuries ago, that was not the way of doing it. Why? There was no way of measuring alcohol in the product. So there was a different way. The ingredients were taxed. Malt was taxed. Hops was taxed. Um, brewers here in Bamberg, for instance, were not allowed to have to own their own mill. They had to bring the malt to the city mill 
have it uh, milled there and then take the grist back to the brewery in order to turn that into beer. And when the city mill mil milled it, they made an excise, an extra charge, which was the tax. So when you tax the ingredients of a product, you have to make sure that the producer does not evade the tax by using other ingredients. So that was the original idea of the purity laws in order to make sure that the financial basis of the community worked. And I'm not just making that up. You, you can find that very easily by the simple fact that, for instance, the Bamberg purity law, which had been rediscovered five or six years ago after scholars had been looking it for a long time, they found it in the tax legislation of the city and not in the food legislation because of that. So it was most importantly about the taxes and all that quality idea and also that atmospherical emotional background to it you know bavarian purity law the bavarian beer the bavarian heavens you know all that came at a much later point uh, in uh, about 100 years ago in in the 20th century when marketing suddenly became important for beer till around 1900 here in, in germany you wouldn't do much marketing about beer. You did maybe a small commercial or something, but um, all the breweries were so small. They only supplied their local regular customers and there was no industry breweries. There was no need in uh, competing with other breweries because you were so small anyhow. And with the industrialization of the process, suddenly everything changed. You could scale your production easily. So there was a point in taking market shares from other breweries and suddenly it became important to tell your customer something about your beer. Why is your beer better than the next person's beer? And boom, there was the purity law. Now we can say, hey, our beer is better because we brew according to purity law and the others don't. So that's how the whole thing got into, in, into play. And eventually the purity law became synonymous for, for German beer. And I think much of the esteem of German beer in the world still today stems from the purity law because uh, even though it was a tax thing, it still made sure that all those crappy ingredients which breweries in other countries might have used never ended up in beer here. When, when you look at old lists, what they were doing, for instance, instead of using hops, which was very expensive, you, uh, they would put uh, the gallbladders of, of cows into beer in order to make it bitter. From a bitter point of view, it works, but I don't want to drink that, you know? And a lot of things like that happen, using raw grain, using spent grain, using uh, all, all kinds of other ingredients in order to increase the amount of beer you, you, uh, you can sell or decrease your costs. So I think the purity law was very important to uh, set a standard of production. In that point, you don't need it that much today anymore because any food production nowadays is heavily regulated. For, for that, you don't need a purity law on, anymore. So now the limitations the purity law brings with it seem to become more important in, in the everyday discussion, even here in Germany, because obviously you cannot do invent, inventive stuff like pumpkin ale or cherry beer or, you know, all these craft beers that are out there. Um, simply because you're not allowed to. I still think, though, that the purity law is very important today and that it shouldn't be abolished for a, a very simple reason. The purity law has defined for centuries here in Germany what we regard to be a beer. So in our mind, when we think of beer, we have a certain 
product in expectation. And even today, when you give a German a pumpkin ale, they might like it, they might dislike it, but many of them will say, that's not beer, because we're triggered to what beer is by the purity law. Customer expectation. When you sell someone a vehicle with two wheels and you call that a car, the person will say, no, it's not a car, it's a motorcycle. From the function, it's the same thing. It's a motor vehicle that gets you from A to B, but you regard it differently. So I think, at least for German customers, it's still very important that the purity law is there because it defines for us what beer is. What I think is too strict that any product similar to beer, even if it's not called beer on the label, has to follow it. I think they should open it in such a way that when you want to do experiments and if you want to work with other flavors, you should be allowed to do it as long as you call it something different on the label. Yeah, Call it cherry drink or cherry barley drink, uh, whatever. So the customer knows, okay, this is not beer what I'm buying, but I still might like the flavor or I'm still uh, interested in, in trying it. So that is something that should be changed and opened. But the purity law defining what beer is, I think, is still very necessary today. That's an interesting perspective. And I think that there is a lot of traditionalists in the U.S. that would argue that our world would benefit from an interpretation of beer not to be defined by very, very loose ingredient ideas, but rather by something more defined that also involves process and also creates more categorization for, because we love to categorize things uh, and somehow miss, uh, somehow beer is very broad here. So to have expanded ideas of what like a a malt beverage is or like a a flavored malt beverage or something of the sort. So it is interesting. If I wanted to make a cherry beer in Bamberg, I could make it and it would just be called something different or I'm not allowed to make it at all. In Bavaria, usually uh, the authorities will eventually step in and uh, stop you from doing that. Yeah, usually they would. I mean, I guess it's the same in the United States. The authorities cannot constantly check every product out there. When you're small enough and you do it on on a small local scale, uh, scale, you might just stay under the radar and be able to do that. But as soon as the official food department gets wind of that, usually they will stop you. Yeah. In other states of Germany, it might be different. Oh, that's interesting. And that applies for products that that may be produced for export only. That's an interesting question. Technically, uh, any producer in Germany has to follow, no matter whether they export it or sell it locally. But again, there's this German saying where there's, uh, uh, how to translate that? If nobody sues, there's not going to be a judge. Um, When you produce something outside the purity law and you ship it to China and nobody knows, nothing is going to happen, obviously. To be honest, I never endeavored in that respect because for us, purity law is all about the history we we do. I've never uh, tested to that extent. I only know certain talks of uh, um, other other brewers, what they have uh, done, the really small ones. I don't know to the last extent, really. Well, thank you for sharing your perspective on the Reinheitsgebot and for uh, coloring in some of the history a little bit as well. I think that it's important for us to remember there's always, and I think this is kind of a, a thread throughout our conversation, is that there's practical and economic reasons for things to happen. And then sometimes there's also a romantic reason or a romanticization of it that can create marketing effect too. And that's particularly relevant when it's particular to maybe a whole region or to, and I think 
uh, Belgian producers are also pretty masterful at this too. So in closing, give us some sort of parting thoughts for our audience. I hope that uh, eventually uh, you listeners out there can find Schlenkela at some place in the United States, or if not, maybe you, you even travel to Germany. Remember when you drink a smoked beer, it's something from the past. It's, it's, a, it's a time travel. It's a very unique flavor, which has been around for centuries. And maybe your great, great, great grandparents, uh, which might even have come from, from Europe to the United States, in, in, uh, had that flavor back in the old times as well. Schlenkeler Historic Brewery, and it's a sip of beer history, and it's a time travel. And I hope you can enjoy it one day. Thank you very much for listening. Matthias, thank you so much for coming on Heavy Hops. Thank you very much.